Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, tonight we're debating whether or not there should be welfare, and we are starting right now. With Mouthy Infidel's opening statement, want to let you know folks, Mouthy Infidel is linked in the description. He has a popular YouTube channel called Mouthy Infidel, and with that, the floor is all yours. Yeah, so um, I think that when people generally think about poverty, people think about the harms of poverty purely in terms of um, how it harms uh, our opportunities in life. Um, if we're growing up in poverty, uh, we're less likely to have access to a good education, we're less likely to have access to costly enrichment activities, um, less likely to have access to quality tutoring or even just um, social circles that might have good opportunities present in them. Uh, and I think that this is certainly very important to think about when we're thinking about the uh, harms of poverty. Um, however, I think that the harm of poverty actually goes significantly deeper than this. Um, so scientists and epidemiologists are increasingly finding that poverty actually has a strongly detrimental um, permanent irreversible effects on our brains, on our bodies. Um, uh, poverty can make it more likely for us to develop a heart disease. Poverty makes it more likely for us to develop diabetes. Um, poverty uh, shortens our lifespan. Uh, the stress associated with poverty uh, literally harms uh, the physical development of our brains. Um, and I think that Elizabeth Stoker summed this up very well when she made the analogy that poverty is like lead. Um, it physically harms us. It makes us sick. Um, it, poverty is simply put uh, a poison. Uh, it is a very miserable uh, uh, predicament to be in. Um, now, how does this relate to welfare? Uh, well, if you look at census data, about 50% of the population uh, simply doesn't work. Uh, these people are classified as non-workers. It's about half of all people. Uh, and you might think, well, the solution is if people can't find jobs to just, you know, create more jobs. Maybe if we let the free market um, uh, work its magic, it would create enough jobs so that nobody lives in poverty. Um which is a tempting line of thought. But the problem with this is that the vast majority of this, uh, when you break down this non-worker category, are people who are uh, disabled, uh, too disabled to work, people who are like very elderly, people who are children, people who are caretakers and are too busy taking care of a sick or a disabled family member to work. And um, these people um, are people who I think a decent society can acknowledge shouldn't be compelled through threat of poverty uh, to be forced to enter the labor market in order to receive an income and obviously not be in poverty. Um, however, because a totally free market uh, doesn't distribute money to people unless they work, um, these people are simply locked out 
of the labor market. And therefore, the only way to avoid dooming these groups of people, uh, these math swaths of, the, swaths of the population to poverty, is to provide some mechanism through which, via taxation, we can provide a income to these people that is not conditional upon their participation uh, in the labor force. Uh, and I think that is fundamentally welfare. Um, so that's my, uh, yeah, that's basically my argument. Thank you very much, Ethan. We will kick it over to Yaron Brook for his opening statement. Do want to give him an introduction first and also want to remind you folks that both Mouthy and Yaron Brook are linked in the description. So as you're listening throughout this debate at any point in time, you can click on their link in the description. And that includes if you're listening to the Modern Day Debate podcast, as we also link our guests in the description there. Now for Yaron's Introduction. Thank you very much, Iran, for your patience. Iran Brook is the host of the Iran Brook Show, renowned best-selling author and world-class speaker. Brook's podcast can be heard on the Iran Brook Show at Spreaker and YouTube. Brook was the executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute, ARI, for 17 years, from 2000 to 2017. He remains chairman of the board of ARI and its primary spokesperson. So with that, thanks so much for being with us tonight, and the floor is all yours. Thank you, James. Thank you, uh, Mouthy, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm not going to argue that poverty is a good thing. We're going to agree on that. Poverty sucks. Um, but it's also true that poverty is the state in which human beings have lived forever. Up until about 250 years ago, everybody, with exception of maybe a small number of aristocrats, lived under poverty that is indeed hard to imagine the extent of that poverty uh, as compared in the world we live in today. You would have to go to places like places in Africa, places in Asia to even see the kind of poverty that we all basically lived under uh, 250 years ago. Yeah, life expectancy is low. I mean, indeed, the poor today have far dramatically better lives than, we, than anybody did 250 years ago. They live longer, they live healthier, they live in relative luxury. They have running water, flushing toilets, electricity, iPhones, many of them, air conditioning, automobiles, at least if we're talking about the United States. So uh, poverty sucks. Today's poor in the United States are far better off than poor people have ever been in all of human history. And yeah, there's a lot of them who can't work. Some of them choose not to work for a variety of reasons. We can talk about the role welfare has in uh, providing uh, motivation not to work and providing incentives not to work. Some of them are old, yeah, but they had a lifetime to save, so there's no reason they should be poor. Some of them are sick. Hopefully they have family members who can take care of them. Um, and yeah, there are lots of other reasons people might be poor. The question fundamentally is this, two, two questions. One is the fact that somebody's poor, how does that create a claim on me? How is their suffering? And I accept all this suffering as possible. How is their suffering, even if they cannot find work, a demand on me? Morally, that sounds offensive. The idea that because you are struggling, you are hurting, you have a hard time, somehow you should be able to steal, take my money from me in order to nourish or facilitate your need. 
So I don't think anybody should be forced to work. And I don't believe anybody should be forced to pay somebody to live because that's what taxation is. It is force. It's not voluntary. The whole point is that it's force. So yes, it's, 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 uh, it's a bad situation. Uh, and, uh, it does not, the fact that you are in a bad situation does not give you a right to my stuff. I have two objections to welfare. First, it's immoral. And secondly, it's impractical. It's immoral. First reason it's immoral is because it takes what I produce, what I create, what I make, and it uses coercion and force to take that away from me. It is theft that is somehow be legitimized by the democratic process. But if, if we did a one-on-one, if Malthi came to me and said, I don't have money to pay my medical bills, give me money, and I said no, we wouldn't accept the idea that he could pull a gun out of me and take my money by force. But somehow, it's okay for him to go to the neighbors and get everybody to vote. And if they vote to take my money, it's not theft anymore. Now it's democracy and it's okay. So it's, it's the use of force, it's, uh, it's immoral, it's unjust, it, and it's, it's uh, you know, force, I think, is bad uniformly, whether it's used by the individual or whether it's used by the state. So I think it's immoral because it takes stuff from me, but I also think it's immoral because it does harm to the recipient. It's true that to be poor is difficult, but to be poor and to receive welfare is actually worse. To be poor and to receive welfare, you are told implicitly that you're hopeless, that you depend on others for your survival, that you don't have the skill and ability to take care of yourself. If self-esteem comes from achievement, you are denied for life of self-esteem because nobody expects you to achieve anything. You don't expect yourself to achieve anything. Just accept what the government gives you. I think welfare institutionalizes people into what poverty, and we can see that with the so-called war on poverty. People are stuck. They've been trained to accept the gift of poverty or the gift in quote of poverty and not to strive for themselves and not to achieve and not to succeed and not go out there and find a job. So we're incentivizing them not to work. And it destroys, as I said, their ability to have self-esteem and therefore really the ability to be happy, to achieve happiness. Finally, welfare is impractical. It doesn't work as uh, we see the poverty rates in the United States not really budging in spite of gazillions of dollars thrown at poverty at both the uh, federal, state, local levels. We see resentment and victimhood on the part of the recipient. Uh, recipients are not exactly happy. They're not exactly flourishing. All these medical problems, all these issues with poverty, they still exist in spite of how long have we had a 50, 50 years now? Yeah, 50 years of a war in poverty since the late 1960s. Um, we discourage people from saving by promising them Social Security, Social Security, the, really the biggest pyramid scheme in all of human history. And yet, has it made them that better off? Many people retire and suddenly discover, wait a minute, Social Security is not that, that much money. Can I really live on this? And yet we've taught them not to save their entire life. 
The lack of saving destroys economic activity. Indeed, jobs are created through saving and investment, and yet a whole economic policies around welfare are targeted at consumption. Got about 30 and seconds left. Denial of saving and investment. You can see that through we tax the middle class and the rich who tend to save and invest. And we provide money to the to the relative poor who tend to consume and not save and invest. Welfare programs have been expanded to include much of the middle class, not just poor people. And of course, they have been failures. And inevitably, they must be failures. So I think overall, poverty, uh, so I think overall, while poverty is a bad thing, the solution to poverty is a free market. It does create lots of jobs and creates good jobs, creates high paying jobs. And yes, children don't have to work. That is the beauty of capitalism. Capitalism liberated children from work. All of human history, the last 100,000 years, children have worked on the farm and ultimately in factories. And then capitalism provided their parents with jobs that paid well enough that these children could then go out and get an education and still have food on their tables. We're at about uh, six and a half minutes for that opening statement. Yeah, so that's fine. So if you want to get people out of poverty, the only system in all of human history to get people out of poverty is free market capitalism. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, for those opening statements, want to remind you folks, our guests are linked in the description and we're thrilled to have them. So we want to remind you to be your regular friendly selves in the chat, criticizing the arguments instead of the person. And so thanks so much, gentlemen. The floor is all yours for that open conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I guess there's a lot uh, to address there. I'll try not to... Um you know, to try to address it all because I don't want to just be exchanging monologues, but I'll try to sort of address the broad strokes of what you're saying. Um, <clears throat> so you made a few appeals to the idea that just empirically, um, just empirically, uh, the practicality of, of welfare. Um, so you say that the empirical evidence points to the idea that welfare is impractical, that free markets are the best way to alleviate poverty. Um, I, of course, take a serious issue uh, with this. Um, I think that um, if you look at like cross-national correlations, for example, there is a very strong and undeniable correlation between more so Whoops, you froze social spending and greater uh, poverty reduction. Um, what would you say? Oh, sorry, I froze. You froze. A am I back? Everything, but there was a lag, but you've caught, you're caught up now. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, so um, from what I'm familiar with, uh, the OECD statistics that I'm familiar with, um, when you measure the relationship between the final poverty level as a percentage of market poverty level and net social spending, uh, the relationship between welfare and poverty reduction across countries is um, an R-squared correlation of 0 0.64, which seems pretty significant. Um, you appealed to the idea of sort of this, um, this concept of like dynamic effects of, well, if you didn't have welfare, old people might save more, sick people um, uh, might have families that take care of them. Uh, the problem is we can see empirically that 
when we reduce how much we spend on welfare, these things simply aren't enough to compensate for the massive reduction in poverty that welfare brings. Um, you appeal to the war on poverty being a failure. I think this is um, this is a very common thing I hear. But the main problem that I see with this is what you're appealing to is the fact that if you look at the official poverty rate, it hasn't budged much since um, since the war on poverty started. Um, but the problem is the official poverty rate does not take into account things like capital gains or non-cash benefits such as public housing, Medicaid, SNAP, the earned income tax tax credit. Uh, and so as a result, family who families who benefit from tax measures such as the earned income tax credits or income supports such as SNAP appear to be no better off than families who are not enrolled in these programs, according to the official poverty metric. Um, so in other words, these statistics are basically saying that um, if you measure the effectiveness of federal anti-poverty policies using a measure of poverty, that explicitly ignores the impact of those same policies, um, then the impact seems small. And uh, yeah, of course, I would agree with that, but I think it's a faulty usage of statistics. Um, and an analysis by the Council of Economic Advisors shows that when safety net programs are taken into account using something called uh, the disposable income poverty rate, the poverty Poverty rate actually fell uh, from 26% in 1967 to 16% in 2012, uh, which is a reduction by uh, a reduction of more than one third, which I see as um, uh, pretty significant. And I guess um, just the other point, um, we could get to more stuff such as the saving and investment stuff, which I also obviously disagree with. But uh, to keep it short, I'll just address uh, one more thing, which is. Um, he talked about the harms that it causes to welfare recipients and how it institutionalizes poverty. And um, I think this is sort of an antiquated way of viewing things. Um, so, for example, um, there is a uh, there is a really interesting literature review in 2018 by somebody whose name I there's no way I'm going to correctly pronounce. Uh, I think the name is Iona Marinescu. Um, and basically what they found was that uh, various unconditional cash transfer programs uh, tend to boost incomes, boost health, uh, boost education. And despite the widespread belief that welfare benefits encourage people not to work, there's just no substantial effect. Uh, outcome to that effect at all. So uh, programs that give out cash unconditionally, like payouts from the Alaska Permanent Fund, uh, which distributes natural resource revenue uh, to the people of Alaska, the reduction in employment was like nowhere to be found. Um, and one other thing is that uh, a recent, in a recent experiment, uh, um, you may have heard of this, uh, some philanthropists randomly selected 125 residents of poor neighborhoods in the city of uh, Stockton, California, and gave them uh, $500 in unconditional cash transfers. Uh, and instead of working less, uh, the people who got the cash actually worked more. Uh, interviews with the Stockton residents who received the $500 a month spent it almost entirely on necessities like food and utilities. Uh, and in interviews, uh, they reported feeling more confident, more engaged, even more entrepreneurial. Um, and people who got the money were healthier, happier, less anxious, more stable and well-off, et cetera. And so I think what this suggests is that Contrary to this antiquated view about poverty being a product of this, you know, sort of culture of poverty that, you know, keeps people with this dependent mindset, it seems to be the case that 
poverty keeps people down through a variety of day-to-day difficulties and hassles and bills, which make it very hard for poor people to better their situations. Uh, poverty to, in the... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, just to be sure that we move... Yeah, we'll, this uh, is... We'll, we'll kind of try to work on e- getting each of these exchanges yeah, sure. to yep. shrink down as we go. Yeah, this is my last, this is like my last point. Um, So the basic idea here is that, you know, contrary to this idea of like, uh, you know, the culture of dependency or whatever, it seems that poverty keeps people down through a flurry of like day-to-day difficulties and hassles that make it harder for poor people to better their situations. It makes them harder for them to go to school to become a nurse instead of a cashier, makes it harder for them to move to a better neighborhood, to look for a better job, uh, et cetera. And so instead of working on their futures, people in poverty are trapped by the need to pay the bills of the moment. And therefore, through this model, providing welfare actually gives people the breathing room that is required for them to focus on the future and actually meaningfully better their situation. Um, so that's all I'd say. So, so we could go back and forth with empirical studies. I mean, I could be citing the Finnish study that did universal basic income and found almost no impact one way or the other. Uh, and there are plenty of studies that show uh, the detrimental effect of welfare recipients. But, but look, if you were right, and uh, welfare worked so well, then we wouldn't hear constant complaining and demands for more and more and more and more. Uh, poverty rates around the world, if you actually look at poverty rates around the world, if you take away the, the minor, relative minor differences between the United States and Europe, but you look at the globe, uh, the places in the world that have reduced the most poverty have done it without any welfare. So uh, China has reduced poverty rates by, uh, you know, almost a billion people have come out of poverty in China over the last 40 years with basically no welfare, zero welfare. So in spite of the idea that China's communist or socialist, there's almost no transfer payments in uh, China. Same is true of India, which has almost no transfer payments and yet has seen a massive reduction in poverty. I'm not even going to mention a place like South Korea, which has gone from uh, being as poor as North Korea to being as rich as Europe or Taiwan or Singapore or Hong Kong, which has almost no welfare and has yet seen a massive reduction. I, I like the way you use stats. I wish, I wish more people would do that on your side because the way you use stat inequality hasn't increased in the United States very much over the last 30 to 40 years. Because if you include transfer payments and all the things that you included there, inequality has not gone up. So you, you can challenge Stiglitz and, uh, and other Nobel Prize winners in terms of how they do the stats on inequality. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a shame that people are using statistics in the way that seems convenient to them at the time. Um, so uh, yes, by some measures, uh, by some measures of poverty, poverty has gone down in the United States. It doesn't feel that way because people complain and people make a big deal as if poverty is as bad or worse uh, than it has ever been. But look, uh, all of this is, in my view, all the stats and all this is, is a waste because the fundamental point here is that we'd be far better off without welfare, but I can't, I can't show you that. I can't point to an alternate universe in which welfare never came into being. You point out that uh, poverty has declined from 20-something percent to 16, I think you said which I believe the, the numbers seem right. 
How do we know what would have happened if there was no wealth? How do we control for the non-existence of wealth? I mean, I can speculate. I think you speculate quite educate, quite uh, well that poverty would actually be lower than 16%. Uh, if we match the rate of decline in poverty in uh, in countries that were growing at a GDP growth of four, five, 6%, which I think the United States could achieve, poverty would have shrunk significantly more than it has shrunk. Indeed, growth of GDP contributes to reduction in poverty far more than any uh, redistribu redistribution programs. So, the, the studies, the, the stats that you are mentioning, I, you know, I think are correct. Um, but I think it's a question of how we interpret them and, and what, we actually, what we actually make of them. Uh, in my view, if you eliminated poverty, if you uh, lower taxes in accordance with that, if you deregulated the economy, if you made an economy actually free, you would have dramatically higher wealth creation, dramatically greater business activity, massive numbers of new jobs, which many of those jobs would be taken by welfare recipients today, driving them out of welfare. Productivity would increase dramatically. As productivity would increase, wages would increase. As wages would increase, people would have much more money to be able to afford the health care, to afford to be able to take care of a sick cousin or a sick aunt or a sick relative, to be able to take care of all these people who supposedly fall between the cracks, who are so poor, but yet poverty is shrinking. So, you know, I, 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 this seems to be constant complaint about poverty and yet it's shrinking uh, significantly. So, I, you know, all of this um, old sick and other could be easily taken care of by the difference in economic growth if you eliminated, if you eliminated uh, the role, the, the heavy intervention of government in the rest of the economy. Um, so the solution to poverty uh, is two at the end of the day. One is job creation, wealth creation, and second is private charity. So to the extent that some people do indeed fall between the cracks, I think it would be a tiny fraction of the number that, that today are defined as poor. To the extent that there are people who fall between the cracks, those people will be taken care of through family and through private charity. Uh, Americans have been uh, some of the most generous people in all the history of mankind. And uh, there's plenty of charity to take care of those people who actually need it. And charity, when it's private, is not given unconditionally the way the government does it. It's not given in the kind of uh, bureau bureaucracy and the inefficiency that the government does uh, welfare. It would be more efficient. It would require those who can work to work. It would be much more linked to actual virtuous activities, uh, and as a consequence, help people in a much more substantial way get out of poverty much faster and much more effectively. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess I, there's a few things I would take issue with there. Um, so um, I guess to, to get like a smaller point out of the way, um, you brought up the example of uh, Finland's universal basic income. And I am somewhat familiar with that. Um, there were a variety of problems with Finland's universal basic income. It only lasted for like two years. So like the effects that we've seen, we have very limited um, data to draw off of, whereas, you know, programs that have been in existence for a much longer time, like um, Alaska's permanent fund and have been more extensively studied, seem to have a lot uh, uh, better outcomes. 
Um, there's a lot of like bureaucratic problems in Finland as well. And um, Finland was is widely regarded as a, an example of a place where um, uh, universal basic income failed because of a variety of very, you know, conditional and bureaucratic factors that were specific to Finland. Um, but if you look at other experiments and social spending more generally, this seems to be undeniably uh, the exception rather than the rule. Um, and so you talked about how if um, uh, if uh, uh, um, if welfare was working, we wouldn't see uh, you know complaining or demands for more. Um, I don't know how I feel about that argument. I feel like um, in large part uh, the reason for there, there were some interesting um, papers showing that there's some correlation between like higher levels of income inequality and more. Um, uh, uh, popularity in like populist right-wing and left-wing populist parties. Um, so it, I, I feel like a lot of the fervor of uh, uh, among many people with regards to, they feel like we're not spending enough on social spending is a driven by uh, driven by largely the fact that we don't do enough social spending. Um, if we look at places like um, the Nordic countries, for example, these places are very cohesive. People seem very content. Uh, nobody's there, there's not a lot of um, uh, social discontent, or at least to the extent there is that there is in the U.S. And it's because they engage in sufficient social spending uh, that people generally feel as if they're taken care of. Um, you um, talk about how um, the places in the world, if you like zoom out from, you know, places like the United States and Europe that have reduced uh, poverty the most did so uh, through capitalism. And I certainly agree that market mechanisms. I'm not like a, a advocating for a planned economy here. I certainly agree that market mechanisms um, do have a substantial role in eliminating poverty. Um, the question then becomes, uh, do countries which allow for market mechanisms and social spending and have become rich through market mechanisms, can these countries, if they implement social spending, reduce poverty more than countries which uh, have market mechanisms and don't uh, implement social spending alongside that? And the answer seems to be yes, based on um, correlations among OECD countries between social spending and uh, poverty reduction. Um, you talked about um, we can't like um, control for we don't have like a control example like we don't have um, an example of a place with no welfare that we can like really look at um, to compare this. Um, but it seems like um, the further we go, at least among like OECD countries, for example, the further that wealthy countries go from social spending and from welfare and towards the direction of sort of what you're talking about, the less uh, poverty is reduced. In fact, there was an interesting um, there was an interesting paper from like 2014 from the Institute uh, for the Study of Labor. Uh, it was titled uh, "The Welfare State and Anti-Poverty Policy in Rich Countries," and it reviewed a bunch of different papers. and It found that um, uh, quote no advanced economy has achieved a low level of poverty with a low level of social spending. Um, so it seems like the further we go in the direction that you're advocating for, while we don't have a perfect example of what you're advocating for, the further we go, the less effective we're able to uh, reduce poverty. Um, one more thing uh, that you brought up was um, charity, which is like a big example. Um, 
And it seems like, so I mentioned earlier that if you look at the correlation among OECD countries between uh, a market poverty level and net social spending, uh, or the final poverty level is a percentage of market poverty level and net social spending, you see that the relationship between welfare and poverty reduction is about 0.64. Um, if you look at the same data, you can see that the correlation between the post-transfer poverty rate and net private so, net private social spending, in other words, charity, uh, is about a R-squared correlation of 0.0. .0. It seems like people, it seems like a collective action problem where people without some coercive element or without um, like taxation and welfare, not enough people just voluntarily choose to help out poor people to, um, uh, to uh, uh, substantially reduce poverty. Um, and I guess just the final point um, is that you brought up um, wages and jobs. Like if we had a free market, um, we would people would be earning more, more people would have jobs, and so people would have more money. Um, I could grant that for the sake of argument. I'm sure we could quibble over the details about that. I could grant that for the sake of argument and still say that <clears throat> based on the data that we currently have, it seems like a you know a free market deregulated economy even if it, that was the best way to raise jobs and raise wages with uh social spending and welfare alongside that would uh seem more effective at reducing uh, uh um, reducing um poverty than just the free market with no social spending uh, that seems to be what the empirical evidence suggests um i'm gonna just to uh, the next one we're gonna like limit it to maybe like three and a half to four minutes or so. We'll give uh, Yaron the same amount of time to respond. And thanks so much, guys. And reminder, folks, our guests are linked in the description. Go ahead, Yaron. All right. I mean, it, it, it's hard to attain everything. Um, I, I apologize because he's, he, uh, uh, Matthew's going long. But uh, on almost every point, you know, take, take uh, the, the so-called social cohesion that exists in some of these other countries that don't result in, I don't know, right-wing populist uh, movements. I take Sweden. Sweden is the country that people love to love, right? Uh, the people are happy and people, is there real social cohesion in Sweden? Really? Has anybody visited Sweden recently over the last five years? I have, I've been there several times. Uh, if you look at the uh, right-wing populists, they actually have 20 to 30% of the vote in Sweden. Um, not very happy. If you want to, if you want to have a discussion about the effect of Islam or Muslims on Swedish society, you can't even speak because they'll shush you up because uh, it's it's just not acceptable to even talk about the issue and raise the issue. So I, I'm very skeptical about this notion of Sweden being some kind of heaven, uh, either socially, economically, uh, from a poverty perspective, or any perspective for that matter. Um, and Sweden is the last, you know, while Sweden redistributes uh, a lot of wealth, it has actually been cutting its welfare uh, over the last uh, few decades as a consequence of the fact that the welfare spending they had almost drove them, uh, almost drove them bankrupt. Um, let me let me take a different uh, tact here, because, uh, you know, I think I think we could uh, we could argue about. Uh, the details, I mean, if you go to Asia, Asian countries, you can find very little social spending and very low rates of poverty in places like Korea and, and, and Taiwan. Um, Europe, uh, there seems to be some correlation between social spending and the, uh, and the number of poor. In China, again, in developing countries, there's zero social spending, and yet poverty has shrunk dramatically. Uh, I'd give one more example, which I think is important. I would give the the example, maybe the most important example, is the United States and Europe uh, in the 19th century, which saw dramatic 
very fast reductions in the rate of poverty uh, with almost no state intervention, with almost no redistribution of wealth. And indeed, you could argue that with the establishment of the modern welfare state in, uh, in the United States in the 1930s and in Europe, uh, depending exactly where, Germany in the late 19th century, uh, rest of Europe, sometime in the 20th century, you saw a massive reduction in economic growth, massive reduction in uh, wealth creation, and, and generally a lower standard of living than otherwise was possible. Uh, Europe is, a, is relatively poor to the United States, and part of the relative poverty that Europe has vis-a-vis -vis the US is a consequence of the fact that they, uh, they redistribute massive amounts of wealth instead of investing it and instead of encouraging entrepreneurship. Um, so, but I, but I want to take I want to I want to step back from this kind of line of argument. We we could continue it, uh, it uh, if you want, but I want to step back. Let's let's even assume that everything that Malthy says is true. Let's assume that all these poverty programs quote work in the sense that they reduce poverty, um, and if we did more of them, poverty would reduce even more. I would argue they're still wrong. That is, the standard of goodness is not poverty. The standard of goodness is not how many poor people they are. The system that we should be thinking about creating, the kind of society that we want, is not a society that is correlated somehow with the rates of poverty. Early 19th century America, well, let's say mid-century, let's get outside of slavery, let's say late 19th century America, had very, very high rates of poverty. And yet it was an amazing place in which innovation and production and the rate of growth and the rate of reduction in poverty was some of the highest in all of human history. Why does poverty matter? What makes poverty important? I don't care to be kind of a little outrageous. I don't care about the poor. I care that ambitious, moral, rational people right, have the opportunity to achieve happiness, success in their lives. I want people to be able to live the best life that they can live. Every person, rich, middle class, poor. I don't care about the rich. I really don't care about the middle class. And I don't care about the poor. I don't care about any of those groups. I care about individuals having the freedom, having the ability, having the opportunities to achieve the most in their lives. If we look at what welfare does to children, the way, again, it institutionalizes a mindset so that children of welfare recipients are likely to be welfare recipients, not in a marketplace, not when the culture is a culture that expects them to work, that expects them to take care of themselves, that expects them to achieve, to advance, to progress, to take responsibility for their own lives. Not in a culture where maybe their parents are getting private charity. And by the way, the statistics on charity are really distortive because you're taking a world in which has welfare and now you're layering on charity and you're saying the charity doesn't have an impact. Great, because the charity is, is minuscule as compared to the welfare state. But of course, I give exactly zero to poverty reducing charities today, right? Why? Because 50% of my income goes to that. Why would I give more, right? A big chunk of my money is already going to do that. But if I was free, I would be happy 
if, if I didn't have to pay 50% of my taxes, I'd be happy to give to specific charities that instituted programs that made sense to me in terms of alleviating poverty, because I do care ultimately, right, about people not being poor. But I don't care about the poor. I'd like to help children get a better education. But the welfare state denies that. The welfare state provides them with an inferior product called public education. And, you know, I care about, you know, why why do they have all these problems health-wise? Well, a lot of it is because of the lifestyle they engage in. And the lifestyle they engage in is made possible because of welfare. Whether it's the eating habits, the lack of exercise habits, right? Now, obesity, this is the problem of poverty in the United States. It's a problem of obesity. They're so poor, they eat too much. That's not healthy, right? But if you, for example, if you linked uh, certain behaviors as a private charity probably will to, certain, to uh, the ability to get help, you might have a healthier population and maybe uh, you know problems of health would reduce. So I want an individualist response rather than a collectivist response. I don't view the poor as all equal. Some people deserve to be poor. Some people do not deserve to be poor. Some people, yeah. Some people benefit from charity. My from uh, from welfare. You know, my guess is that ninety plus percent of them do not. Not in the big picture. And you can poo-poo the kind of economic growth that capitalism achieves, but if you look again at the fact that. 98% of humanity was poor 250 years ago. Less than 8% is extremely poor today. Almost all of that is a consequence of markets, of wealth creation, of capitalism. Imagine if we had more of that. Imagine if those job-creating, wealth-creating engines, there was much more of that. Poverty would be reduced dramatically. So I, I think the solution is freedom, and I think part of the challenge here is uh, I challenge the moral assumption that it's okay to use force to take money from me and give it to other people, even if it, quote, works. Thanks very much. And Malti, for this next one, just a constraint. I know that you've got a round in the chamber mm -hmm. ready to fire at <clears throat> each of Iran's arguments. However, just uh, if you want to pick your your uh, the, the ones you most want to discuss and okay. just choose those, we'll kind of shrink it down. I'm going to put a timer for about three minutes just to try to kind of get the back and forth going more quickly. I'll, I'll try to really speed run the, the points. Okay. Um, yeah, sure. So um, you mentioned this idea of um, charity uh, uh, is sort of crowded out by welfare. And if we had less welfare, people would give more to charity. And that's the problem with me uh, citing these charity statistics. Um, the problem that I see is that if One that... Just quickly, uh, uh, Europeans have never been charitable. So uh, in Europe, you get zero charity. You've always received almost no charity. Americans have been incredibly charitable. And charity for poverty has declined as we become more welfare-oriented. Sorry, I just yeah. wanted to... Yeah, yeah. So um, if the uh, if the effect of of welfare crowding out was, as you say, such that getting rid of welfare would lead to more charity that is enough to compensate for um, uh, uh, the anti welfare effects uh, or the anti poverty effects of welfare, then we wouldn't see statistics that we see with regards to when we spend less and less and less on social spending across countries, we get further and further and further away from su uh, successfully addressing the problem of poverty. Um, you briefly brought up the issue of Sweden's social cohesion and poverty. Um, 
Of course, Sweden isn't perfect with regards to social cohesion or poverty, but if you look at it, um, like relatively, if you look at, you know, statistics with regards to social cohesion or how content Swedish people are with their lives or even relative poverty metrics or absolute poverty metrics, um, it's, it just seems to be the case that Sweden is doing much better than we are, uh, like, uh, like factually. Um, you also mentioned that Sweden uh, is cutting welfare because of social spending almost drove them uh, bankrupt. Um, I don't really agree with this uh, narrative. Um, social uh, social spending in Sweden was kind of increasing since the 1900s. Even in the golden age of Swedish social democracy, GDP growth was uh, 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 was was pretty healthy uh, for the most part. So. Um, so like, for example, between 1980 and 1990, GDP per capita grew in Sweden by 20 percent um, between like 1960 and uh, 1970. Um, sweet, uh, real GDP per capita doubled in Sweden. Um, there was a collapse in the 90s that read, led to the reforms that you're talking about, but I think that was more a product of deregulation of credit, bad monetary policy, other geopolitical issues happening at the same time, et cetera. So I wouldn't really pin that on uh, social spending. Um, you talk about um, how a lot of Asian countries have reduced poverty without welfare. I'm not denying that you can significantly reduce poverty without welfare. Um, market mechanisms do a great job at reducing poverty. However, it seems to be the case that market mechanisms plus social spending um, reduces poverty more than just the market mechanisms that has reduced poverty significantly in the uh, Asian countries. Um, you talk about GDP growth and entrepreneurship. Um, in terms of entrepreneurship, um, the economist Gareth Olds has done a lot of interesting work demonstrating that more social spending can actually lead to more entrepreneurship because it allows people feel to feel more comfortable taking risks and allows people to save more for investment. In terms of left. GDP growth, I think that reducing inequality has a pretty significant, uh, uh, leads to a pretty significant reduction in GD er, increase in GDP growth because it allows people to develop their human capital more and so on. Um, in terms of uh, morals, I uh, think that my moral case, even if it was all correct, you said even if it's all, if it works, then it shouldn't um, matter because of the morals. I think that our morals align more than you might think. I am a psychological egoist. I think that we're all out to further uh, make the best society for ourselves uh, possible. Um, but I think that having a Ten society seconds. that's more cohesive, with less poverty, with less um, crime, with uh, better growth, I think this is conducive to all of our own interests. And I agree that people should be trying to achieve the most in their lives possible. But I think that poverty helps people be able to do that by giving them the breathing room that they need um, to, to sort of better their circumstance rather than being trapped by the you know cluster of daily hassles and um, uh, uh, bills that poverty traps them under. Thank you very much. I mean, I, I, you know, we could have a debate about psychological egoism, but uh, I'm an egoist and I don't want my money taken away from me. And if you think it's in my self-interest to give money to the poor, then convince me of that. But you don't want to convince me to give money to the poor. You want to pull out a gun and take my money by force to give to the poor. So if indeed you're an advocate of some form of, uh, of egoism, then you should be promoting a voluntary system of warfare in which individuals uh, convince one another that it's true that it's in our self-interest to benefit. And the problem of coordination is way, way, way overstated. If you can convince me to give uh, 20, 30, 40% of my uh, money towards uh, poverty reduction, and if we can uh, create a competitive environment at what, among uh, charities, 
uh, then you would get a far more efficient welfare state system than we have today, where much of the money that goes into welfare today is eaten up by a bureaucracy and is a, is a, is a complete waste. So uh, on an ethical basis, the fact that you think or that a majority of people think that welfare is somehow creates a good society and is egoistic, egoistically better for you doesn't give you the right to force me to fund it, right? You believe it, you fund it. That's great. So um, the fact that there's a collective action problem is your problem, not mine in that sense, right? You have to convince enough people to group together to do what you think they should do. That's what collective action problems require. So if you're truly an egoist, then you shouldn't be causing other people to do what you think is good for you. You should be letting them do what they think is good for them. Um, look, we, we, again, we could get into a whole debate about this, but there is no zero economic theory that links inequality to GDP growth, none. And uh, I know the OECD studies that have showed inequality connected to GDP. Uh, let me just, let me just, I think the technical word for the quality of the research there is that it's BS. It's complete. And, and if, if we had the study and I went through the statistics, because it sounds like you like to do the stats right, I could show you that the stats are BS. When you include Zimbabwe as having high inequality in the United States, having high inequality and, and, and using both of those countries on an axis, then you're gonna get crazy and, and, and irresponsible results, which is exactly what these people do. Uh, inequality, there's no economic theory linking into GDP. Indeed, I would argue it's the, it's, the, uh, it's the opposite. It's societies in which that leave people free tend to have high inequality and also have high GDP and also have low consumption inequality, which is really the inequality that is important, which is the differences in consumption and the difference in consumption in rich countries uh, in, in high inequality countries are far smaller than, uh, than what people, than what you'd expect from the uh, income or wealth uh, inequality. Um, you know, these uh, content studies, and I noticed you haven't used happiness, so that's to your credit, uh, because uh, happiness studies are dubious uh, in terms of their definition of happiness. So yes, oh, 30 seconds Swedes, left. Yeah, Swedes say they're content. Um, it, it's fascinating, but Swedes in America say they're content too. Swedes in America, or at least the studies I saw about Denmark, Danes in America are richer than Danes in Denmark. They are happier than, or they are more content than Danes in Denmark. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's something going on here with how people define content and what that means. I, I usually find people who are not very ambitious and uh, who are not very entrepreneurial uh, are very content people. And people that tend to be ambitious and entrepreneurial tend to be not very content. And uh, Scandinavians who are super ambitious tend to not stay in Scandinavia. They tend to go to Switzerland, um, to the UK, or to the United States of America, particularly if they've made a little bit of money and don't want to be taxed at the rates that Scandinavia taxes them. So you've got a selection bias. You've got a, a survival bias in all of those studies. Um, uh, look, at the end of the day, I think, I think that the issue here is uh, twofold from a, from a moral perspective your right to coerce me to provide for what you think is socially good. And I think the second point is what is going to create a better society, a society in which we coerce each other based on what we think is going to be, or a society in which we leave people free to make choices for themselves. Uh, that includes the poor and that includes the wealthy and, uh, and let the dice fall where they may.
Thank you very much. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so a few points there. So for one, you talk about how, um, you know, if I was truly an egoist, I should be trying to convince uh, other people to, you know, donate to charity rather than, you know, using a coercive force like uh, taxation and redistribution. Um, I guess the reason why I would uh, take issue with this is because um, I think that um, uh, uh, sort of part of the nature of collective action problems is that if we all had to chip into a certain thing, it makes all of us better off. However, it's simply infeasible. And we've seen empirically that just no society ever has been able to convince enough people to chip in to have the positive effects that uh, welfare has. So even if it's coercion, even if it's involuntary, I think um, having people democratically decide that we are going to agree to have this coercive force, I think that can make everybody better off, even if it is coercive. Um, I think that... um, Militarian at the end. Oh, I, I mean, sure, but ultimately, my uh, uh, my uh, d- dedication to utilitarian comes from my desire to personally live the best life that I can, and I think the best life for me and the best life for most people can happen in a society that is uh, flourishing. Um, and so, I guess a couple other points. Um, you talked about how under uh, uh, charity we'd have a more efficient system. Um, I guess I, I don't want to like beat a dead horse, like keep going over the same points, but I, I just, um, I guess I just feel like we haven't seen that. We've seen that when we try to rely more on charity and less on welfare, um, the system has gotten less efficient and the outcomes related to it have gotten uh, a lot less positive. Um, you talked about inequality and uh, GDP growth or that there's no sound uh, economic theory linking um, uh, equality to GDP growth. Um And I agree with you that there have been some very bad studies. So some of the OECD studies that include countries like Zimbabwe um, have been really poor because they distort the data. Um, There was one interesting paper from 2014 from the International Monetary Fund, um, which specifically included like rich countries like European, uh, like the European countries, America, Japan, um, to sort of get out, uh, get that bias uh, out of the way. And basically what they did is that they used a cross-country data set that distinguishes market inequality from net inequality to um, calculate redistributive transfers for a large number of country year observations. Uh, And what they found is that inequality is robustly correlated with faster and more durable growth for a given level of redistribution. And redistribution is generally benign, uh, somewhat negative, but benign in terms of its impact on growth. Uh, and therefore, the combined direct and indirect, uh, indirect effects on redistribution, including growth effects from the resulting lower inequality, are on average poor gr- uh, pro-growth. Um, in terms of the um, economic theory, I would say that the exactly. economic theory is that having more equality allows people to develop their like human capital more. Um, it can actually lead to more investment because it creates more social and political stability, uh, which makes people feel like investing is safer. Uh, and finally, in terms of the content studies, um, uh, I agree that some of them can be culturally biased, but I guess um, pointing out that there could be a flaw in the data set isn't enough for me to abandon it. I would need to see if the cultural bias is prevalent enough and goes in a certain direction enough to um, 
uh, uh, negate the conclusion that I'm drawing from it. And in terms of the immigrants who are just as content in America, I do think I think that's where like the real selection bias occurs because the kinds of people who are specifically moving to America are going to be the people who are more likely to be happy uh, when they've moved to America. So I, I see a selection bias with uh, using that um, argument in that way, I guess. Um, so, Thank yeah. You. Potentially, the, the problem there is when you go to third and fourth generation Swedes and Danes in Minnesota or in places like that, where it's no longer a selection bias unless unless you think that it gets transferred in the genes, which I am skeptical of. Um, I I think the key here is the mall point, you know, the, the, and and we can discuss some of the empirical stuff, but the, the, the mall point that um, you have a collective action problem, you believe that it results in a certain thing, and you think that anything that you can convince 51% of the people um, is okay to do to me. Uh, you know, my speech might be offensive enough as to cause harm to enough people so that you, in your utilitarian world, uh, believe that my speech is causing real harm to people. Maybe it's convinced people, you know, uh, uh, to vote against welfare. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, I am a danger to poverty in the world, so we should silence me. Uh, free speech, one can imagine, uh, could be, you know, is, is the idea of free speech in the Constitution, at least, is not based on a utilitarian framework, thank God. Be, well, thank whatever. But uh, given that, uh, given that um, uh, speech is not necessarily, uh, in spite of what Mill says, uh, always... Every, not everybody perceives it as good for society, put it that way. And a majority often perceives it as bad for society. And we've decided that it doesn't matter what a majority thinks, leaving people alone and allowing them to be free and allowing them to engage in speech freely is the right thing to do on principle. And it does not require a majority in order to achieve it. I believe that is true in terms of property. I believe that is true in terms of people's work and believe that is true in terms of my income. My life is mine. It's not yours to decide as a majority whether you think it should be deployed at X or at Y because you have a collective action problem. That is your problem, not mine. So morally, if you believe that individuals should be allowed to pursue their values, to pursue the optimal life for themselves, then you're trying to inflict your values and your way of living on me. I mean, one of the things I always tell, and I'm not accusing you of being a socialist or communist, but one of the, thing, one of the things I often tell my my uh, people who are socialists and communists is great. Under capitalism, you can be a communist. You can go and start a commune. You can, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, and I won't interfere with you. You can start your own welfare little system as long as you don't use force to take money away. As you mentioned, I think in California, the uh, the entrepreneur who gave people a check. Great if if private individuals want to do private charity and want to do experiments in private charity. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna oppose that. That certainly would not be illegal under my system. But for you to force me to participate in such an experiment, and for you to then, you know, use as justification a bunch of empirical studies, uh, as if that should convince me that it's in my self-interest, that you know, whereas I can imagine what I would have done with the 50% of income that was taken from me, and I think what I would have done would have done to my life much more, and actually maybe could have helped poor people even more. But I'm not given the opportunity to experiment, you know, to 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 manifest my my uh, my ideas, because you're using a gun against me, because you're using force against me. So I think that uh, that morally, uh, it, you know, running your own social experiment using coercion on me 
is, in my view, immoral and wrong. And, and that, to me, is the, the ultimate, my, my ultimate uh, argument against welfare. Um, yeah, we got, I, let, me, let me just say this about charity, because you've said this a couple of times. The studies that show that, you know, when you, when you reduce uh, social spending, charity doesn't go up or something like that. There's only one country that has any kind of history of charity, and that is the United States. Uh, I don't know when would be the period in which we reduced uh, social spending uh, to such an extent uh, that uh, the private sector would have entered into this and charity would have uh, been a replacement, but it hasn't been it hasn't been significant. The changes in social spending have been marginal. You wouldn't expect a result. Uh, my guess is that if it went to zero tomorrow, charity would increase substantially. The same, you've got the same problem uh, in, in that study that the uh, European Bank or the World Bank did on inequality. The differences between Europe and the United States are so small in terms of social spending uh, that to come to robust statistical conclusions about the different levels and, and uh, whether social spending is being pro-growth or not uh, is, is dubious uh, statistically. And I would argue Probably. if that were the case, then Denmark would be significantly richer than the United States, and it's not. It's quite a bit poorer. We'll give four minutes to each of you to kind of draw together the threads from this discussion. And so we'll kick it over to Mouthy. And after this four minutes from each of you, we'll jump into the Q&A. So thanks for your questions, folks. And Mouthy, the floor is all yours. All right. So um, I haven't seen any data on third and fourth generation immigrants from Denmark and Sweden or Norway. Um, I guess I could see an argument that, you know, Maybe um, uh, there are some like uh, some of the selection biases carried over, maybe not through genes, but just through um, upbringing and, you know, kind of, yeah, like, like through upbringing, I guess. Like um, if your parent immigrated to America because they wanted to be in America, they're super happy with America and they raised you to sort of have that same outlook, you're going to report to studies looking, um, uh, saying that you are more um, content living in America. Um, so I, I guess I'm not sure. Um, I would just have to see more data on that. Um, it, with regards to the moral stuff, you said um, you talked about free speech, uh, utilitarianism. You think um, that the majority can think some people's speech is bad, but that wouldn't justify us um, uh, uh, sort of doing away with free speech. And I agree with that. Um, but that's because I think that free speech, even if a majority of people think it's bad, and to be clear, I'm not arguing that welfare is good because a majority of people think it's good. I'm saying it's good because of its empirical outcomes. And I think that the empirical outcomes of allowing for free speech are on the net positive for everyone in society, just like the empirical outcomes of uh, doing welfare are uh, net positive for society. Um, you talk about how, you know, my life is mine and it's immoral to inflict um, force on me uh, or prevent me from living the way that I want to live. Um, I guess this is just like a fundamental disagreement between us. I think that if you can have a coercive element that in some way uses coercion to interfere with people who, uh, or with how people would have otherwise lived their lives in the absence of coercion, but nonetheless that the existence of that coercion uh, creates a more prosperous society and allows every individual to live in general happier lives uh, in a more flourishing society. Um, I think that that is a, a net good, uh, even from uh, an egoist perspective. I think that people are, every individual is happier when they're less likely to fall into deep poverty in some point in their lives, when they're less likely to be assaulted into, uh, in the streets because of lower inequality. 
um, et cetera. So I think that coercion is not necessarily antithetical to people's interests. Um, but I guess that's just a sort of a fundamental disagreement. Um, you talk about how only one country uh, in uh, only one country has a history with charity, and that's the USA. Um, well, even in the USA, when we massively ramped up um, social spending, I sent the statistics earlier. Um, when we massive when we massively ramped up social spending during the war on poverty, um, what we saw was a massive reduction in poverty. If all of that welfare did was crowd out charity, and charity before that would have just been uh, more and would have compensated, then we wouldn't have seen that massive reduction in poverty as a result of increased social spending. And as the U.S. has spent more, you've seen that when the U.S. spends more and more in social spending, um, there's a reduction in poverty. Um, and when we reduce social spending, there's an increase in poverty as a result of that. So I, I don't, I just don't see any evidence that even in the U.S., uh, charity has the capacity to compensate um, uh, for welfare. At best, this seconds. is an unfalsifiable claim, and at worst, it's contrary to all of the available evidence that we currently have. Um, finally, um, you talked about how uh, the studies I referenced, differences between Europe and the USA are so small, it's statistically dubious. Um, I don't actually, uh, I, I don't really think that is necessarily true. So for example, if you look at social expenditures as a percentage of GDP, it's like 30.8% in Finland, and it's like 19% in the US. That is a, that is a very stark difference. And um, there are statistical, it seems there are statistical methods that we can use to look at the differences and say, do these differences when we use control variables and regression analysis and other statistical uh, methods, uh, can we see uh, these differing levels of uh, social expenditures and inequality um, having an impact on growth? And it seems that uh, we can. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah, I guess. Yeah. Thank you very much. We'll give the same amount of time to Iran and then we'll go into that Q&A. Sure. I, I, you know, beware of these statistical methods and uh, particularly, particularly when, uh, when the researchers have a bias. As somebody who used to do these kind of statistical stuff uh, as a finance professor a long, long time ago, um, it's very easy to manipulate the data to get what you want. But, uh, and, and many of these people do. And also, if, if for all of you, for everybody listening, if you're going to look at statistics, look at all the studies, including those that might not correlate with the uh, with uh, the uh, desired result. Um, the United States, since the war in poverty, uh, we have seen uh, significant GDP growth. Uh, if you look at uh, poverty rates uh, before the war in poverty started, they had been declining. Uh, certainly, they'd been declining since uh, 1800, but they had been declining uh, post-World War II and into the 1960s already. Uh, to attribute whatever poverty reduction uh, to the welfare state, I think is dubious, given that you had economic growth, uh, you had levels of employment, uh, it, it particularly you know, in, in certain periods, uh, levels of employment that, that have not been seen. You also had um, a, a significant and dramatic increase in the, the quality of life and standard of living. I actually think poverty in the United States is, is much lower than what the stats would even suggest it is, not because of welfare, but because poor people today, as I mentioned earlier in the United States, tend to have air conditioning, tend to have, because electricity is so cheap, tend to have iPhones. I mean, how do you even measure the value of an iPhone to anybody? Uh, you know, our, our estimations of poverty are very primitive uh, and, and very dubious. Our estimates generally of income and wealth are very dubious because they don't take into account the massive consumer surplus that is a result of the great products that we have today. We don't know how to measure the benefit of technology has 
on our life. So, uh, you know, again, I can't, I can't, uh, I, I can't run an experiment, but uh, I would guess, and this is uh, based on my understanding of economics and my understanding of how people behave, if we had not engaged in a war on poverty in the 1960s, my guess is poverty rates today would be dramatically lower. There'd be far more jobs. There would have been a lot more investment. There would be uh, there would be a lot more entrepreneurship in the United States, and the country as a whole would be richer, and individuals in it would be richer as well. Including, since we're talking about them, the poor would be in a much better situation than they are today. Uh, economic growth would have accelerated dramatically. But here's the the the, the important point. Uh, Malthy says that um, according to his theory. Uh, everybody is better. Literally, everybody is better off if we have welfare. Well, I am not. I'm not. Now, I can tell. I can show you all the different ways that I'm not. I, you know, a lot of my income is gone. I should have had it. I could have done amazing things with it. Uh, I don't believe the correlation between inequality and crime. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe it exists. Um, there, there are reasons why there's more crime in the United States than there is in Europe, and I'm not sure it has anything to do with uh, with inequality uh but we'll we'll put that aside but i am an example of a victim uh of somebody who you say you want to make everybody better off they won't be you know he's uh, you've got a Rawlsian thing going nobody is worse off because of my move right everybody well i'm not and i know a lot of people who are not and i know a lot of poor people who are not because you might deny in the aggregate that welfare does harm to uh, poor people. But certainly there are individuals who would, under other circumstances, be more ambitious, who would, under these uh, diff- uh, under uh, free market circumstances, worked harder, who would, under free market circumstances, uh, got a better job, forced themselves to get a better education, found better means to improve their lives, and at least at the individual level, even if you can't see it in the aggregate, there has to be an effect of incentives uh, that has discouraged certain people and institutionalized this poverty and caused children of people who accept welfare to expect welfare in the future and not to seek out new jobs. Uh, You know, one of the great tragedies, I think, of the welfare state in the war poverty is what has happened to the African-American community in the United States. And the fact that so many of them now are multi-generation in poverty, continuously receiving welfare, and yet I'm not able to break out from that welfare. So, and I think welfare has done horrors to, uh, to many poor people. And it's, it's uh, any utilitarian theory sacrifices some for others. And here I think you have sacrificed many too many time all right thank you very much both of our guests want to remind you folks a couple of things both of our guests are linked in the description so if you want to hear more you can hear more by clicking on those links below and that includes if you're listening to the modern day debate podcast episode of this debate as we do have a podcast folks check it out and so you can find our guest links there as well and then last before we jump into this q a we are stoked destiny will be returning this coming tuesday he'll be debating pogan on capitalism versus marxism so that should be a juicy one and don't forget to hit that subscribe and notification button so you don't miss it so thanks for your first question this one coming in from robert nasir says if i invest capital via super chat does that make it too obvious which side i support haha thanks for putting on the event gang thanks very much and 
want to say a huge thanks to our guests as they are indeed linked in that description. Jonathan Honig says, in support of Yaron. Yaron. Ah, gosh. Yaron, Yaron. You got it right the first time. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Steven Steen says, in support of communism. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Steven. Brad Becker says, value for value. Thanks for the debate. And go, Yaron. Thank you very much. And Chali Sama says, go, Yaron. And Brad Becker says, reality is greater than wishes. And says, inequality means we are free to earn wealth as we choose. Inequality is not inherently bad. Malti, if you want to respond to that, because that's where we're starting to get into more of the... Can I just say that I wrote a book called Equal (laughs) is Unfair, uh, which is a book on inequality and why inequality is a bogus issue. Poverty might be a real issue, but inequality is a non-issue. But that, there it is right there. Equal is unfair. You can see it there. Go buy it on Amazon. I'm going to add that. I'm going to add that in the description as well if it's not already there. We've got a number of links. And so go to Mouthy if you want to respond. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this just kind of gets back to a broader um, disagreement that Yaron and I were having, um, which is that I fundamentally believe that the vast majority of people in society are better off when their society is flourishing, when their society is more cohesive, has greater uh, economic mobility. Um, And I think that um, uh, these kinds of outcomes are more uh, likely to be found in a society just sort of empirically um, when society is reducing inequality. Um, I was familiar that um, Yaron Brook, uh, just sort of as a matter of morals, just um, isn't really interested in the question of inequality. Uh, and that's why I kind of tried to tailor my arguments more so towards poverty. Um, but yeah, I do think that inequality has a number of um, uh, negative externalities that the vast majority of in- individuals in society are uh, better off without. Um, but yeah. So it. if we can respond quickly, I, you know, I don't think that's true. Uh, so just take economic mobility. Uh, there's no evidence to suggest that economic mobility is greater, uh, is related to equality. In the contrary, uh, economic mobility in the United States was far higher 100 years ago um, and far higher uh, when inequality is, uh, was at its highest and, and uh, in, the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. The studies that compare the United States to Sweden or Denmark, let's say, um, again, I mean, you can do lots of stuff with uh, with uh, with statistics. When the gap between the rich and the poor is very small, then to be mobile means very little. When the gap is high, to be mobile means a lot. But the fact is that that mobility in the United States, if we do cross section analysis over time in the U.S. Uh, uh, mobility is much higher when capitalism is thriving and mobility gets reduced as we redistribute more wealth. I'll give you a quick chance uh, to respond, Ethan, because it was originally for you, and then I'll jump to the next one. We've got to give sure. you a pithy response. Yeah, yeah, really quickly. So um, I guess um, what I would say there is um, I do think that um, – I, I'm not familiar with the data among uh, the longitudinal data with regards to the United States, with regards to how um, inequality and um, mobility have been correlated. I do think that 
we sort of have to be cautious when we are approaching things like this because it's very easy to see a correlation and assume a causal relationship. Um, I generally like to avoid just, you know, when I'm referencing data, I generally try to avoid just, you know, bare correlations and try to incorporate papers that engage in like more statistical analysis and so on to try and control for certain variables and use dummy variables or like regression analysis and so on. Um, however, with regards to um, the... Uh, what Yaron mentioned, which is just that when you reduce inequality, of course, it's going to look like you increase social mobility um, because um, uh, uh, because like the so let's imagine like a um, like a hypothetical where it's like there's two ladders, one of which um, uh, uh, has spokes that are further away from each other. That's like a more unequal society. And the other one has uh, sort of legs that are closer together. That's like a more equal society. And you could say that reducing those legs or the reducing the distance between the legs of course is going to make it look like you uh, uh like you were climbed higher you climbed more legs but that's only because like they're closer together but you haven't actually gotten richer in in like sort of absolute terms i guess if, if that analogy makes sense but um yeah, yeah. Oh, just really quickly, really quickly. Um, there was an interesting paper called the Scandinavian Fantasy that looked at income mobility in Denmark and the U.S. And basically what it found is that before taking into account taxes and transfers, the U.S. has greater um, uh, or they have about even income or economic mobility. But after taking into account taxes and transfer, Denmark has much greater economic mobility because of welfare. And it seems like even in absolute terms, uh, people are able to get richer and able to like start businesses and be more innovative because of more social spending. So it's not just like a, a statistical illusion brought about by less inequality. This next one coming in from Bubble Gum Gun says, the existence of the state is against everything Brooke says. There is no such thing as free market under the state. Fascism is just the price we pay. I'll give you a chance to respond to that if you'd like, Yaron. Sure, it's off the debate topic, but uh, there is no such thing as free markets without the state. I am not an anarchist. Anarchism is the dissolution of markets into gang warfare and violence, and it is abhorrent. Gotcha. And Jacob Carlin says, from Mouthy, have you ever heard of Hong Kong? No welfare there. Yeah, so again, I'm not going to, um, this was a point that was also brought up earlier, which is that you can see, well, first of all, I don't agree with the idea that Hong Kong has absolutely no welfare. I don't know if any countries have zero, like literally zero welfare or zero social spending. But um, I do think that um, uh, uh, like you can have significant reductions in poverty through like market mechanisms and so on. I'm not denying that empirical fact, but what I am saying is that market mechanisms seem to reduce poverty. Um, uh, social spending along with market mechanisms seem to reduce poverty more than just market mechanisms alone could. Um, so yeah, that's, um, I guess all I'd say about that. Can I just say this? All poverty is reduced by market mechanism because even welfare is taking money from the market. It's taking money from taking money from the producers in the marketplace. Wealth that was created in the marketplace and redistributed. So when you don't have a marketplace, you have zero reduction in poverty because yeah. uh, you have to. Somebody has to create the wealth to redistribute. And my point is that that somebody who creates the wealth should have a should have a the say in how that wealth is used and that. Uh, you know, majorities should not be in a position to dictate to individuals how their wealth should be used. 
Yeah, of course, I I do agree with um, the first point. I disagree with the second point. Um, yeah, I, I do think that without markets, you know, um, it's you're you're not going to have as good of a welfare state. Of course, I think well, uh, markets are really important for productivity and growth. Um, whether or not you want to say that the resulting reduction in uh, poverty from um, uh, from welfare is just a product of markets, or whether we should just you know say that's because of markets as well, I think it's sort of like a semantic issue, but the fundamental point I'm making is that markets plus welfare, I think, reduces poverty more than mm-hmm. just markets could. Um, yeah, but yeah, I disagree with the, the morals, of course, for uh, reasons we started earlier. Yeah. Thanks so much. Sorry for rushing you guys. I, I seriously yeah, hate doing that. It's just that we have a lot of great questions I want to squeeze in and still respect your guys' time. Sigma Any said, Sigma uses voluntary donation. It's super effective. Thank you for that. And Brandon Arlene says, Iran, how do you feel about taxes being used to equip poor people with the education and resources needed to rise out of poverty. As I already said, I think it's a disaster. Um, I don't think tax money should be used to give anybody anything. That is, tax money should be used. I mean, there should should be no course of taxation. The government should do one thing and one thing only, and that is to protect our rights, to protect our freedoms. So there should be a police, a military, and a judicial system, and that is it. Education is far too important, as is healthcare, to be granted to a government monopoly. We can see what happens when you have that government monopoly. The product is awful. Um, and the, the, uh, the, and the, and the customer turns out to be not the students. The customer turns out to be the teachers. The teachers rule the day. Uh, you can see that with COVID, with schools shutting down and being closed and continue to be closed uh, in spite of the fact that it's not good for the kids because nobody cares about the kids. It's not about the kids. So uh, I am a huge advocate for improving education by privatizing it, by eliminating the state control over it, certainly its production. Uh, The best way to equip people to rise up from poverty is to give them a great education. The best way to get them a great education is to create a competitive educational system uh, that actually produces results. Gotcha. And Chandler Saunders says, so should we lower the standard for poverty in our country like China did so that the number of those in poverty dramatically drops overnight? Not no, sure. I mean, that's silly, right? We, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, I don't know that we should measure poverty. I don't know what the value of measuring poverty is. I, I, what I want to measure is freedom. What I want is to leave people free to pursue their own opportunities, including poor people. Uh, you know what you could do to help poverty? You could eliminate uh, licensing laws. You could eliminate the massive difficulties to open businesses. You want to open a nail salon? Uh, the unbelievable amount of costs and effort you have to go into, bureaucratic. It takes it can take two years to get a license uh, to open a business in a poor neighborhood. So you want to help poor people get rid of all the obstacles. And the obstacles are all created by the state. The obstacles are all created by regulations. And one of the obstacles, in my view, is the existence of a paycheck if I just sit at home and don't do anything. And uh, that's an obstacle to people actually rising out of poverty. Gotcha. And Super K-Pill says, Mouthy, what about the moral argument that it's simply wrong to forcefully take wealth from some and give it to others? Yeah, so um, like I said, my sort of moral framework is that I want uh, the best possible world for myself. I'm motivated by my own self-interest. I think that everyone else fundamentally is motivated by their own self-interest. And I think that 
everybody or generally the vast majority of people's self-interest, mine included, can be most well met in a society with welfare. I fundamentally am happier with my life. And I think most people are happier with their life when they're less likely to sink into deep poverty at some point in their life, when they're less likely to have like a family member in poverty, when they're less likely to be, you know, assaulted on the street because of higher poverty leading to higher crime, when they're uh, in a society that's more cohesive and has stronger growth. So I disagree with Yaron's fundamental premise that coercion is fundamentally antithetical to um, our self-interest because I think coercive structures can actually serve the self-interest of the vast majority of people in society. Okay. And I think we can see this sort of empirically. Yeah. Sorry, okay. I mean, just quickly note that in the 19th century in the United States, one could buy insurance against poverty, uh, one's own poverty, one could buy in the private markets, all kinds of mechanisms if one was responsible enough to secure one's ability to survive uh, if bad stuff happened to oneself. Uh, the difference is that then it is you taking action, your responsibility, your voluntary uh, transaction in order to engage in making sure you don't get poor uh, versus uh, this uh, coercive collectivization and treating everybody the same rather than letting individuals be individuals and making their own choices in life. Yeah, so really, really quickly. Um, so I, I guess um, I, I think that, so it's true that you could have some forms of insurance in like 1968, for example, in the United States. But it's also the case that, you know, as we've, you know, ramped up social spending since 1968, poverty has uh, uh, decreased. So it seems like, and, and of course, from the, you know, cross-country correlations between poverty and welfare, we can see that these sorts of dynamic effects that you are referring to don't properly compensate for a, a, a good, uh, successful welfare state. And um, I, uh, when it comes to, you know, it's, it's your responsibility. Um, yeah, I guess just fundamentally, I, th I don't inherently care about things being voluntary. I care about things being voluntary insofar as something being voluntary serves uh, the self-interest of people in society. And I think that some coercive structures that are not voluntary in the sense that you mean the word voluntary uh, can be conducive to people's uh, self-interest. We've so. got one from Super K Pill. Who is people's self-interest? Super. Not what I view as people's self-interest. Sure. And the only way for us to resolve it is by force. The only sure. way to resolve it is through coercion. And that, uh, that yeah, I think so. Right? We've got Super K Pill who asks, uh, this one for Iran, they say devil's advocate question. Are sure. you in favor of raising minimum wage to $15 since you're against welfare? No, I mean, of course not. Uh, I, I'm against any minimum wage. Uh, minimum wage should be lowered to zero. Uh, and uh, minimum wage is the government intervening in a voluntary exchange between an employee and employee. The government has no business in that exchange. It is immoral to force people to pay a certain amount or to accept. Uh, and it's and it's only rich people uh, like uh, minimum wages because, you know, they send their kids to do internships that get paid exactly zero. Poor kids are not allowed to do internships. Only rich kids are allowed to do internships. Um, you know, poor kids have to be paid 15 bucks so they never get the job. Uh, no, the, the, the empirical studies, and I know, you know, the empirical studies are overwhelming in terms of the negative effects of minimum wages. Now, yes, there's one or two studies that show uh, counter results, but those studies have been uh, challenged and refuted. The overwhelming majority of the empirical evidence out there shows that minimum wage is harmful to the people who need the minimum wage. That is, it, 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 it makes it more difficult for the poorest of the poor or the, the people who have the wrong color skin or whatever it is. They have a disability, they're ex-cons. There's a multitude of ways in which people discriminate 
against people once you increase minimum wage. And there's no accident that the minimum wage was a racist policy uh, instituted by white unions to keep uh, blacks from getting jobs as they migrated north um, uh, during the 19 was it 20s and 30s, I think. Um, and they, 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 they didn't want the wage competitions. They instituted a minimum wage to keep their jobs. And that's what it is today. It's to protect unions and others from competition. No, Robert Nasir has a question. And this one, some of these, as both of you have noticed, these are things you've kind of already addressed. So if you want, you can add like an extra tidbit uh, in terms of answering this. I think, Malthi, I think you probably just answered this roughly. The, uh, Robert asked, by what right does anyone seek to impose by government force their view of, quote, the good society on those who ask nothing more than to be left free to live by their own best judgment? Yeah, so I guess this is sort of where I'll use my opportunity to sort of respond what, to what Euron was saying uh, to my uh, answer to the last question of this effect, which is that um, I agree that so when you said like by your standard of self-interest, it is um, like, you know, coercion can be good, but not by mine. Um, I think that um, so there's sort of two things that you can mean by that. Um, I think in the first sense, I think that there is sort of almost objective ways to measure what is conducive to people's well-being. Like, for example, um, I reject the idea that there is a large swath of society who just enjoys being sick and in pain and in poverty all the time. So I think there are generally like certain like objective metrics that we can use to examine people's well-being. And I think that we can uh, we can show that like the kinds of policies that I advocate for, or at least I think so, obviously you would disagree and this was kind of the point of the debate, but I think that the, the kinds of policies that I advocate advocate for do increase these objective measures of well-being for the vast majority of people in society. Now, I think that you're right in that some people might disagree, right? Like there might be, um, I, I'm not calling like you psychopathic or something, but there could be like a psychopathic billionaire who enjoys seeing people starve and their self-interest might be um, contradicted by welfare. But I think that these kinds of people just fundamentally, um, I, I don't I, I don't care about like these kinds of people. I think that um, um, I want to create the most successful society possible. And if people have interests that are antithetical to that, um, they either are going to have to leave or just uh, the accept the, the coercion, I guess, which is obviously sounds very morally abhorrent to you, but I guess we just, uh, you know, well, but also in that respect. it's a, you know, I'm not going to defend a billionaire who enjoys, uh, I'm not going to defend anybody who enjoys seeing people in poverty. I think that is a, that is not a, a, a right counterfactual to use. The fact is that there might be people who think that they could use their money uh, instead of having it taken by the state to promote their own happiness better than your view of how to promote my happiness, which is to reduce poverty. It might be that I believe that reducing poverty is good for me, and then I can put money into your collective you know, action pool. Uh, it might be that I believe that it could be otherwise. Uh, it also is true that I you know that I think that poverty is reduced much more through uh, through no part, no uh, welfare than through the engagement of it. But but much more important to me is you don't have a right, and I don't care what kind of measures you have. How do you measure um, my uh, suffering, if you will, from having fifty percent of my income taken away from me from somebody else's benefit? You know whatever it happens to be. How do you, how do you do that measurement? You can't. You can you can say you can say it's not good for people to be sick. Okay, you can say it's not good for people to be poor. Okay, 
But you don't have a measure of, I don't know what you, you, you the, the suffering and the pain versus the pleasure and the happiness or whatever, all of that. And, and you don't have a right to engage in that kind of math anyway. Imagine if you had that measure. And now we had kind of a meter where we, where we, you know, you're on, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing this debate. You should be right now working at the, at the, at the soup kitchen. So go off, uh, you know, I've got a gun to the back of your head because the soup kitchen is actually going to make you happier. If you work in the soup kitchen, or you should have been a doctor, you on. You shouldn't have gone into finance or into you know intellectual life. You should have been what Mouthy thinks you should have been, because Mouthy has run the algorithm, and Mouthy knows that you would be happier if only you'd done X, Y, and Z. I mean, this is the problem with all forms of central planning. You don't know what's good for me. You can't tell what's good for me. You don't know even with the poor person. You don't know if giving them a hundred bucks or leaving them alone is better for them, objectively better for them. You actually don't know. You cannot measure those kind of things and you don't have the counterfactual. You, you can do the statistics, but you don't actually have the parallel universe in which you didn't give them the $100 and you saw that maybe they worked hard and got a job and were incredibly successful and did amazing things with their lives and achieved far greater happiness for themselves and for five generations following them because their kids you know, benefit from all that as well, rather than me stuck as a welfare, uh, uh, welfare mother or father. So all of that is you putting yourself and your values and imposing them on other individuals and doing some kind of measurement and aggregating them across all of that. And I think that's, that's what's abhorrent about this whole mechanism. And that's why I'm against, uh, you know, I'm against coercion, even if you, I mean, I'm against coercion no matter what, but I'm certainly against coercion when it's clear to me that you don't know what my values are and you don't know what anybody's values are except your own. We've got a few questions. Yeah, so, gotta so really, to, like, can I just give like a like really a pithy response pithy. to that? Like, okay, okay, okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I guess, um, when you say like, I, you know, I might not like welfare, welfare might be antithetical to my interests. I sort of think that, um, I, I think that this, whoever's saying that is going to usually be wrong in like the vast majority of cases, because I think that the vast majority of people do objectively benefit from um, having coercive things like welfare that I think make society flourish more in general. Um, you talk about how um, I don't like have a measurement for this. I think we can use certain measurements like the health of a population, how content a population reports being um, uh, with their lives, um, you know, social cohesion, happiness. I think there are certain metrics we can use to see whether or not on the aggregate um, the policies I'm advocating for uh, make society flourish more for the vast majority of people. We can use social mobility if you want. And I think that the data tends to suggest that the kinds of uh, policies that I advocate for uh, uh, do have uh, this effect. And I do think it's justified to coerce we people away from what they otherwise would have done if doing so makes uh, the vast majority of the population uh, uh, able to pursue their uh, own self-interest more and make society flourish more. I hate to push in, but just because uh, sure, the, sure. the original question was Zamalthi, and so we'll, we'll jump to the next one. But uh, do want to rush through a couple of quick ones, and then we might be able to squeeze in maybe one or two more, you could say, uh, questions per se. But this one comes from the optimistic pessimist who says, can you please set up a debate with Yaron, Brooke, and Destiny or Vosh? Well, sure try, folks. And then also one similar to that in terms of debate requests. Corey Flores said, I'd love, thanks for your generous super chat, by the way, Corey said, I'd love a round two on statistics, especially the one cited by Mouthy in this debate. I'd like to see someone who has studied statistics like Iran. By the way, I didn't know that it was Dr. Brooke. I uh, I just learned that. Uh, but Iran 
They said they'd love to see. Don't call me Doctor Book, but but yes, I do have a PhD. <laughs> they said would love to see Yaron uh, give his take on those stats, as Yaron seemed to seemed ready to take on this debate morally, whereas Mouthy was ready statistically. So that could be juicy. And so thank you very much for your question. This one, as we said, we we do we're a little bit over time, so I do want to just quick. Maybe get one or two more in. Duncan Curry said, everyone knows that feeding squirrels at the park makes them dependent <laughs> and is harmful. Doesn't the same apply to a more complex animal such as humans? Doesn't this is the welfare, JF argument. <laughs> doesn't welfare love our fellow humans to death? What is the difference? Yeah, so I guess like my counter argument is that it just seems to be based on the data that I've engaged with with regards to unconditional cash transfers, it seems to be that rather than making people uh, dependent and leading to them work less, it actually leads to people working more. And you can see this for the people who received the unconditional uh, cash transfer in Stockton, California, because people receiving additional uh, uh, money gives them the breathing room that they need It uh, is because they're sort of trapped by sort of day-to-day hassles and bills that make it harder for them to focus on the future, focus on going to school to get a better job or move to a different neighborhood, maybe, and sort of having an, a, that additional cushion to sort of take care of like the, you know, bare subsistence needs of life gives people the breathing room that they need to sort of focus more on the future and ultimately become productive members of society. So that's sort of my counter narrative to that that narrative. And it mine seems to be um, corroborated by the evidence that I've engaged with. So gotcha. notice how we treat... Um, we treat the productive members of society as as these uh, sacrificial animals. Uh, not only are they going to uh, they're going to have to fund uh, people in their lives to give them enough room and enough time to do whatever they want to do and so on, and then they have to provide the jobs and they have to create the businesses. Uh, you know, one of the pow- one of the I think one of the powerful uh, messages in uh, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged is: What if those people stopped? You know, what if they stopped? What if they what if they said enough enough of just milking us dry because this individual here is going to be a little bit better than that individual? No, I don't want to give it to that individual. Um, the whole system collapses. I have to say something about social cohesion. You know, the welfare state was invented in Germany uh, by Bismarck. Um, it then uh, that same country uh, it went on to uh, start really two world wars. Uh, you know, uh, massacre. Uh, millions and millions of people. The fact that it was a welfare state, uh, all of it was a welfare state, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, throughout that the post-Bismarck era was a welfare state, didn't change the fact that it led to wars, destruction. I would argue the exact opposite, that uh, capitalism, uh, freedom, uh, a reduction in, um, in uh, the idea that some people owe other people a living somehow, that somehow we have to maximize social well-being, social cohesion. It's exactly this kind of thinking: the public interest, the good, the 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 welfare, the, the you know the the good of the uh, of 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 everybody, utilitarian calculus. All of that is what leads us into warfare. It was lead us into strife. It's what lead us into conflict. Uh, indeed. It is uh, it, it, it is the, the the lack the lack of social cohesion in America today is not a consequence of too little welfare. I would argue it's a consequence of a mentality of expectations of welfare. It's a mentality of sitting people sitting on their on their uh, and doing nothing to make their own lives better and expecting the steel job to come home from China, expecting to have a job in Cincinnati when there's a job two states over, but 
who the hell is going to get in the car and drive two state over when my welfare check is associated with Ohio and in Arkansas, I might not get that welfare check. I mean, there's so many stories of people who don't do the minimal that they need to do in order to go get a job because our intellectuals, our culture and our welfare system has created passivity and a lack of personal responsibility and a willingness to just sit around and wait and blame the other. Who do we blame? For all the problems in this country, we blame foreigners, we blame Chinese, we blame immigrants, we blame everybody, except the fact that our own people won't get up and actually go and do their jobs. So, um, no, I think that lack of social cohesion in America is a consequence of the social of of, uh, of the welfare state. Now, you'll give me the counterfactual of what about Denmark and Sweden and, and all those wonderful countries? Um, a, as I said, as somebody who's visited Denmark, Sweden. Finland, uh, Norway, many times, particularly Sweden and Denmark, particularly Denmark, uh, you know, researchers like to overestimate uh, the social cohesion over there. Um, and and they like and there's a massive selection bias in terms of who stays and who goes, uh, particularly uh, particularly successful people leaving. Uh, but I would love to run an experiment. This is the experiment I would love to run. And I, I, I wonder what Malti thinks of this experiment. I would like to have open borders. I'd like to have generally I'm pro-immigration, but I would like to eliminate all barriers to immigration between the United States, Switzerland, uh, Sweden, De- and Denmark. And I would like, I, I'm curious what people think, what the flow of immigration would be. Now, I'm willing to put a lot of money on the bet that the flow of immigration would be from Scandinavia to the United States, not the other way around, in spite of the greater social spending in Scandinavia. And it won't be a little immigration. It won't be a trickle. It would be a flood. And it would be primarily poor people immigrating from Scandinavia to the United States. Because the United States, in spite of all its problems, has many, still has more opportunities than Scandinavia does to to rise up and be successful. Social mobility in Scandinavia is no big deal. But if you can make it in America, still, and it's becoming less and less the case, but still, You've really made it in life. We can yeah, do a so quick response, real, real, Malky, yeah. and then we'll go to the last question before we say goodbye. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so I guess a, a few points. So you talked about what if the rich just stopped because of uh, social spending. And I think that, of course, that would be bad. But, you know, I think that we've seen across the world that we can have, you know, very robust levels of social spending without the rich just, you know, up and leaving and, you know, not creating any more jobs or not being productive anymore. Um, And even if we were to prove that at some point, you know, if we tax too much, and I'm sure there is such a point, you know, if we tax too much and is redistributed too much, um, uh, the rich would just leave, I would still make the argument that it would still be good to do social spending up to a point before we reach that, uh, that, that maximum limit, right? Um, you talked about how, um, you know, in Germany, it seemed that um, welfare actually reduced social cohesion. Um, I'm not sure. I think that there can be a lot of factors that influence uh, social cohesion in a country. So I guess I'm just skeptical of, you know, saying that there was a lot of welfare here and there was low social cohesion. So therefore, you know, these, this must have been the cause. Um, I generally, I, I try to like, look at like broader, I guess, sample sets and try to do more like specific uh, analysis. So I I guess I'm just sort of like skeptical of that. Um, In terms of the idea that welfare has created a culture of expectation of welfare in the U.S. and that this actually decreases social cohesion, I think that um, 
I, I don't really buy into this narrative, especially because the U.S. has one of the most stringent and, you know, workfare-based welfare systems in the world. You know, our biggest programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit, you have to work in order to receive them. Um, and, and this seems to be the case with a lot of our uh, our programs. And if we look to other countries, even if, because you said, like, we should uh, just, you know, get, get out of, you know, Sweden, get out of Denmark, get off Norway, sure, we can do that. But even if we look at broader correlations, it seems like reductions of inequality across the world, even when you just dis, uh, discount like these countries seem to be correlated with um, increases in social cohesion. And I don't think that we would see that if the concept of welfare leads to this culture of expectation. And I think that the idea of a culture of expectation is also undercut by the idea that we can see things like uh, increases in social spending leading to more entrepreneurship, Um, like entrepreneurship in the Nordic countries where social spending is very high, according to the OECD Enterprise Birth Index, is actually higher than it is in the United States. Uh, And Gareth Olds has done a lot of work uh, 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 that is um, corroborating this as well. and yeah, I, I guess finally, I uh, disagree with the idea that the U.S. has less opportunity. I think that the Nordic countries have better employment, higher rates of entrepreneurship. I think they have uh, plenty of opportunity there despite their high social spending. We must uh, go to this yeah, sure. final question. Ben Miller, thank you very much, said, Iran, how can you keep pointing to countries like China and South Korea that have gone to great lengths to reduce poverty with zero social spending, quote unquote, when they all have free public health care? China doesn't. China does not. If you can't pay for health care in China, you die in the street. There's no charity and there's no free public health care in China. South Korea does, but China does not. Um, by the way, no, no health care is free. Uh, health care is paid for uh, through taxes, through coercion. Uh, and a big chunk of the health care expenditure in places like Europe and South Korea and all the socialized health care countries is paid for by American taxpayers. We are basically subsidizing the healthcare of the rest of the world. The rest of the world is free riding off of American healthcare. Um, 70 plus percent of all medical innovations happening, uh, it's, sorry, it's 60 plus percent of all healthcare innovations happening in the United States because we have still have a little bit of freedom in healthcare and they free ride off of that. We pay higher prices on drugs so that drug companies can do research and development. They pay basically cost on drugs. So uh, drug companies don't make any money from other countries to fund research and development. They have to make all their research and development money in the United States. That's also true of uh, Swiss uh, European drug companies. European drug companies make their money in the U.S., subsidize Europe. So we are basically subsidizing the healthcare of the rest of the planet. The worst thing that could happen to healthcare in South Korea and in Europe would be for the United States to socialize its healthcare system. That would devastate healthcare systems all over the world because they wouldn't have the sacrificial lamb to sacrifice anymore, to milk. And it's the same, uh, Malti just said, yeah, we're gonna tax businessmen up to the point just before they leave, right? Or they reduce their production. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the attitude. The attitude is that they're not individuals. They don't have their own values and utility functions. They don't have their own ability to make choices about their own life and how to spend their own money. We, collective we, have decided that their money is best spent on welfare reduction, and therefore we are going to take as much of it, as much of it, as we can get away with in order to reduce poverty. And um, to me, that's immoral, and it's bad economics, uh, you know, because one of the things you're not measuring is – and. 
And again, you're going to do cross-sectional analysis across countries, which I think is dubious throughout. But what you're not measuring is what those rich people would have done with their money. You're not measuring um, if you take Elon Musk's money, uh, do we get to Mars in 10 years? Is it good? Is a good thing to go to Mars in in by 2030? Will poor people benefit from the ability to go to Mars? In 2030, is it good for humanity? What's the value of that? But if you tax Elon Musk up to a certain point, we won't go to Mars. So, and and my guess is there are a lot of going to Mars-like projects that we have not done because wealthy people have been taxed up to the point where they didn't have the kind of volume, the the, the wealth in order in, in in to engage in those kind of massive. Uh, investment. So again, we're assuming a static world in which every country has a welfare state. We're assuming that the differences between these countries are minor. We're, we're controlling for welfare, but we're not controlling for levels of regulations and other things. Um, we're controlling for, uh, you know, we're doing we're doing statistics, which in my view, uh, uh, you know, often very very dubious. But even if they were all true. You can't actually run the experiment where people weren't forced to give up their money and where other stuff happened. And uh, you're using a bad morality to inflict great pain on humanity, in my view. Uh, Can I just give like a really quick response? Um, Because I think it's a very uh, important part. Um, So in terms of, uh, you know, Elon Musk, I'm uh, I'm skeptical that uh, Elon Musk is going to... uh, take us to Mars, it seems like Elon Musk is more focused on uh, reinventing the subway, but more inconvenient uh, at the moment. Um, And in terms of the idea of, you know, an opportunity cost, um, it seems that um, there might be some opportunity cost to, you know, if you take somebody's money, um, they're less likely to do productive things with it. But you also have to take into account that the idea that, you know, if we give other people money, now they have a greater capacity to, to do greater things as well. Um, you know, if you give someone more economic security, less uh, shield them more from economic risk, they have, uh, a, you know, give them welfare that allows them to save more for investment. They're more likely to be able, a poor person is more likely to be able to start a business. If you shield them from the anxieties and the stresses of uh, of poverty, they're more likely to be able to innerv- innovate or do something productive with their lives. And I think this is generally borne out. You got it. We do want to say there's one last super chat. Corey Flores says, also, Yaron, please unban me. So, I don't know what that story I've is. I've tried, but... Corey. I really have tried, but uh, <laughs> I can't figure out on YouTube how to un- unban somebody once you I apologize. I screwed up. I banned him by accident. I can't quite figure out how to. Un- so if somebody out there has the technical knowledge of how to unban somebody on YouTube, please get in touch with me and let me know, and I'd be happy to unban, uh, unban Corey. Let me just say, <laughs> sorry, maybe but, Elon Musk will invent the unbanning technology. I, you know, uh, I, I find it dubious that anybody should speculate on what Elon Musk can and cannot do, or will or will not do. Um, but uh, or should or should not do. But let me let me also just as a as a caveat for the listeners, uh, but also for Maldi, I am very 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 skeptical about any research that shows there's more entrepreneurship in Scandinavia than there is in the United States. I would uh, I would look at, at at other research that maybe has different results. Uh, as far as I know, the 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 two most entrepreneurial places right now. Uh, uh, is is uh, it, uh, the United States and Israel, and uh, Scandinavia lags behind. But 
you know, go go look at the empirical evidence and uh, and check it out. But uh, because one one uh, social thinker, and I've given that I wrote a book on inequality, I've seen a lot of Nobel Prize winners do crummy statistics. There's a whole book called uh, uh, "Das Kapital for the 21st Century" by uh, by uh, Thomas Piketty, which yeah. is which is um, garbage on stilts from a statistical and data perspective. Uh, and it is he and it gets raved about constantly. So be be quite skeptical about these uh, these statistics, particularly when there's a political agenda behind them. Yeah. So I, I'm just citing. I'm not citing like um, uh, an academic paper this time or anything. I'm just citing the uh, OECD Enterprise uh, or the OECD Enterprise Birth Index, which I generally think is like a pretty credible source, and it generally shows that there are more business startups in uh, the U uh, than in the Nordic countries than in the U.S. And I think uh, Gareth Olds additionally has done work showing that even just within the U.S., programs like food stamps and Medicare have been shown to increase uh, business startups by giving people you know more uh, economic security. We want to let you know, folks, our guests are linked in the description. Please do check out their links as we have really appreciated our guests and want to say a huge thank you both to Yaron as well as to Ethan Mouthy Infidel. It has been a true pleasure. And so, folks, I'll be back in a just a minute or so with a post-credit scene on upcoming debates for Modern Day Debate. And want to say one last thank you, though, to our guests. It's been a true pleasure to have both of you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this was fun. Absolutely. So with that, I'll be back in just a moment. As mentioned, folks. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.